Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spooktacular people welcome to this 240th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is denise denise i am feeling so much better it's amazing to be pain-free yay it's about time lady want to thank all of you guys for your good energy and your prayers they seem to have done the trick and i am on the road to better health and feeling so much better Denise, we had a listener suggest to us, and I cannot remember who, but I know that Rhonda Borgen jumped on board with this as well, that we should look at some of the national parks and see if there's hauntings going on there. So we did, and we found out there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in our national parks. Yes, there are. So national parks are more than just stamps, people. And since they seem to be very close to your heart, you just mentioned the stamps thing. Yes. I said, well, you know, we probably should go with Yosemite National Park because it was one of the first ones and it really is probably the most popular one out there. And you hit the ground running. I know because I like national parks. So I got the computer out and I started doing some researching. So basically, almost all of the research for this episode is entirely Denise. Okay, you can pick up your jaws off the ground. (laughs) I almost fell over too, (laughs) I have to say. Well, before we get into talking about the history and the hauntings and all kinds of weirdness that's going on at Yosemite National Park, and there's a lot going on there, let's welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Aaron with two A's. Hello, Aaron with two A's. I think this is Jean, but it starts with a G. Hello, Jean. Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Alyssa. Hello, Alyssa. Elio. Hey, Elio. Kevin with two N's. Hello, Kevin with a double N. And I believe it was on our last episode that we welcomed a Lawrence. Well, what we didn't know is that this particular individual has their name backwards on Facebook. So it was actually Jen Lawrence. So we apologize for calling you Lawrence, Jen. Welcome to the Spooktacular crew. Yeah, so welcome Lawrence backwards, forwards, Jennifer. We're glad you're here. And now, this moment, Naughty. The deadliest sniper in world history was a Finnish man named Simo Hava. He racked up his unbelievable record of 505 kills during the Winter War. World War II had just broken out when the Soviet Union invaded Finland. The Finnish people were not about to go quietly and they put up a fierce fight that lasted three and a half months. Simo dealt the Soviets a heavy blow with his proudness as a sniper. The Soviets were soon calling him Balea Smurt, which translates to White Death. 
Simo made his kills in just 100 days, meaning that he averaged 5.5 kills per day. His record days were 23, 25, and 40 confirmed kills. The only thing that stopped him was a bullet. The Soviets sent out counter snipers, and one finally got lucky and hit Simo with an exploding bullet. It blew the lower half of his face away, but he survived and had reconstructive surgery. What is really amazing is that Simo made his kills while seated rather than lying down, and he had no scope on his rifle. And that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of January, on the 2nd, in 1905, the Russians surrendered to the Japanese after the Battle of Port Arthur during the Russian Japanese War. The Russo Japanese War was fought from 1904 to 1905 and was a military conflict in which Japan fought against Russia for dominance in Korea and Manchuria. There had been an agreement by Russia to withdraw its troops from Manchuria in 1903, but it reneged and Japan decided it was time to attack. It defeated Russia, becoming the first Asian power in modern times to defeat a European power. President Theodore Roosevelt later mediated a peace conference in September of 1905 held at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Kittery, Maine, where the Russians agreed to the Treaty of Portsmouth. This treaty gave Port Arthur and the Liaodong Peninsula to Japan, and it also had an agreement by Russia to evacuate Manchuria. They also had to recognize Japan's interests in Korea. In the United States, there are 59 separate natural protected areas known as national parks. The Department of the Interior oversees these parks under the National Park Service, and each area has been dedicated by an act of Congress. The effort to set aside these areas was initiated to prevent the expanding population from destroying distinct natural areas so they could be preserved for future generations. Yosemite National Park was one of the first parks designated for special protection. The park covers an area of 747,956 acres in the western Sierra Nevada of Northern California. It was designated as a World Heritage Site in 1984. Known for its granite cliffs, waterfalls, giant sequoia groves, lakes, mountains, and glaciers, it is the source of not only beauty, but of an amazing history and great stories, including those of curses, cryptids, and ghosts. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Yosemite National Park. Wow, this seems to cover it all, Denise. Curses, cryptids, and ghosts. You're going after everything that we love here. Absolutely, but it's all there, so you can't leave it out. And I'm super excited because we are planning our 2019 trip to Northern California, so we will actually get to visit Yosemite in person and get your big fat stamp. Yes, and then I can put it on and say, look, Heather, look, Tammy, and any of you others who have jumped on to the National Park passport books. The California gold rush of 1849 brought thousands of miners to the Sierra Nevada. Many miners were ruthless in their search for gold, and thousands of the native people were killed or died of starvation. In 1851, the Yosemite Valley was entered by the Mariposa Battalion, a state sponsored militia. 
They made two attempts to remove the native people to the Fresno River Reservation, but were unsuccessful. When non-native people began settling in the Yosemite area, life for the native people changed drastically. Euro-American clothing styles and food were adopted. The native people started working for the new arrivals, doing jobs such as guides, wranglers, and woodcutters for the men, with the women taking care of children, housekeeping, and making woven baskets to sell. The population began to shrink, and eventually in 1969, the final houses of the native people were raised. Today, many of the descendants of Yosemite's native people live both nearby and scattered throughout the world. Yosemite was central to the development of the national park system. Galen Clark and others lobbied to protect Yosemite Valley from development. This led to President Abraham Lincoln signing the Yosemite Grant in 1864. Later, John Muir, who was a naturalist and environmental activist, led a successful movement to establish a larger national park that included not just the valley, but the surrounding mountains and forests as well. The area was called Awani, Big Mouth, by the indigenous people, who called themselves the Awani Chi. Muir had been born in Scotland and immigrated to America with his family when he was a child. He loved nature and studied botany in college. It was after an accident caused him to go temporarily blind that he dedicated himself to nature and walked from Indiana to Florida, sketching the terrain as he went. He wrote articles and essays, and his efforts eventually not only led to the creation of Yosemite, but also the Grand Canyon and Sequoia National Parks. That's super cool, and we are very grateful to him because I absolutely love our national parks. And while you were reading that, Denise, I got to thinking about the American Adventure over in Epcot. Mm-hmm. They have the show there that they do. And I always picture that scene where it's John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt standing up on some rocks in the Yosemite Valley talking about forming the national park system and preserving all of that land out there. And it was super cool. Another group that had a huge impact on Yosemite were the Buffalo Soldiers. They were among the first park rangers, especially in the backcountry. I had no idea, Denise. I know. Isn't that cool? That's really neat. The Buffalo Soldiers were formed shortly after the Civil War when African-American Army regiments were dispatched westward to fight in the Indian Wars. They were given the name Buffalo Soldiers by the Cheyenne and other Plains tribes who saw a resemblance between their short curly hair to that of the hair between the horns on a buffalo. And I had no idea that's why they were called that. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, but I mean, a lot of times it's just what people see through their sight, and they're like, oh, curly, dark hair, and buffaloes have curly, dark hair, so sure. they're buffalo soldiers now. Even though the buffalo soldiers wore the uniform of the U.S. Army, they had to overcome much racial prejudice and were often abused and even killed for the smallest perceived offense. They were considered the bottom rung of the ladder, but in spite of that, they performed their duties well, protecting and building the area, and became a huge part of building the infrastructure of Yosemite National Park. They just amaze me because a lot of times, especially in today's day, if somebody starts, even says things cross-eyed, you know, we're just like, that's it, we quit. But in spite of all of that, they just kept at what they were doing. And because of them, a lot of that was built up. So I just really thought that was a great story. Women also played a crucial role in the development of the park. In the 1800s, women were expected to play a traditional role in the family and the home. And as the gold rush drew people to California in the late 1800s, pioneering women found ways to broaden traditional roles. The advent of bloomers allowed women to participate in outdoor pursuits, while women writing about their adventures in the West inspired the imagination of others. Some women expanded traditional roles because of an adventurous spirit, while others branched out from the necessity of supporting the family. 
In the West, women's domestic skills sometimes became the basis for profitable business. The early women became Yosemite's concessioners, adventurers, rangers, naturalists, cultural demonstrators, and artists that helped expand women's roles. I just love all of the information here about Yosemite and all the different various variety of groups that built this park. Yeah, that's that was the neatest thing when I was researching it, because I was expecting to find the history of like the land and all of this. But a lot of the things, especially on the National Park site, was about the people, because Yosemite was really created from all the people that contributed to it. It was just really neat to read about all their stories and how each one brought themselves to the development of this beautiful place. And that women were allowed to take over all of those positions. Yeah, I believe the first female ranger was, well, it would make sense, but the first female park ranger was at Yosemite as well. Neat. And thank God for bloomers because I am not a dress girl. (laughs) Nope. So you can wear bloomers, my dear. Well, as we've pointed out, clearly the shaping of Yosemite is thanks to a wide variety of people from all walks of life, which is really symbolic of a national park that is such a tapestry of different wild areas. Whenever I think of Yosemite, Denise, I always think of climbing because there's all of those sheer granite cliffs and everything, and you always see people climbing on them. Oh, yeah. The the hiking and climbing and the challenges of a lot of those hikes are, are pretty famous even around the world. A lot of these wild areas include vast wilderness areas, waterfalls, deep valleys, lush meadows, and of course, those ancient giant sequoias, which I can't wait to see in person. I lived in California for the first six years of my life, and I've never seen a sequoia, I don't think. No, and you haven't been to Northern California either, so Mm -hmm. next year will be a super treat for Miss Diane. And the park offers a variety of things to do to get people closer to nature. Yosemite is one of the most popular parks and is very crowded during peak season with visitors all seeking to write their story of adventure. There are many stories from the park that are of a different nature as well. For those into the bizarre, unexplained, and supernatural, Yosemite seems to have experiences that touch upon it all, including ghosts, curses, legends, and cryptids. And speaking of that peak season, they recommend to people if you are going to be going during the peak season, which is basically from May to probably September, go really early. Yes, and probably book really, really early. You probably need, I'd say, a year out at least. Especially for camping. The first one we would like to share is the Curse of Tenea Canyon. The canyon is beautiful and calls to the heart of those that love nature and adventure. There happens to be a 10-mile hike through the canyon for those that dare to attempt it. It has rough terrain, mandatory swims, dangerous climbs, and numerous waterfalls and slippery, glacier-polished granite rocks. This trail is dangerous for even an experienced hiker. Mandatory swims? I love that. So it's not just, oh, I need to cross this little creek here, wade through it. Mandatory swim. You got to swim across a river or something? Right. And like rock climb. It's not just like, let's go hike the trail. Like this is like a hike on steroids. Wow. In the 1850s, Chief Tanea of the Alwanichi tribe placed a curse on the canyon as revenge for the death of his son at the hands of the battalion. The troops had been sent by the state of California to relocate the tribe. The Yosemite Indian Petition to Congress of 1891 describes what happened as, quote, the action of the Mariposa Battalion towards our chief at that time, Tenea, and his tribe was wantonly unjust and outrageous. Our only quarrel with the whites then was owing to our determination not to go upon the reservation being established on the Fresno and give up to the whites this magnificent valley, 
which was to us reservation and all that we desired, and that for a few paltry blankets, gugas, and indifferent supplies of rations. That might be furnished us or not at the discretion of any appointed Indian agent. Our fathers had the sorrow to see their tribe conquered, their dignified and honored chief Tanea led out by a halter, like a beast, into the green field to eat grass, amid the wonder and laughter of our pursuers and his youngest son shot dead for no other reason than that he had tried to escape the unjust thraldom of our persecutors. For proof of these statements, you are referred to Dr. Bunnell's history of the discovery of the Yosemite. He was himself attached to this battalion and was an eyewitness to all the facts related. Those who were left of our fathers were taken with their chief, however, to the reservation on the Fresno, from which place hunger and destitution finally forced them to run away after which we have been informed the reservation was broken up, having shed disgrace upon all connected with its management. End quote. Yeah, I was trying to find out more about this, Denise, and that's when I came upon this Yosemite Indian petition to Congress of 1891. I encourage people to Google it. It is paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of all of the things that happened to them, and I pulled that part out just to give their viewpoint of exactly what happened. So you get the honest history here. Well, and that's the thing that always shocked me and people would get upset when they fought back, when the native people fought back. But I'm like, you're going into this absolutely gorgeous wilderness area and saying, okay, you've lived on this land for your whole lives, but we have this nice little reservation over here that's not near as nice and we're going to give you crappy rations and take this land from you. It just, sometimes that just angers me. And doesn't it make more sense to leave the Native people who've already been there and taking care of it to hang out and help take care of it there? Yes, why not Why not put it into the hands of the people who love it more than anybody else? Well, because they did this, we have this curse. And I'm one to believe that quite possibly there really is something going on here. Rangers sometimes refer to the Tanea Canyon as the Bermuda Triangle of Yosemite as they have to do dozens of rescues there every year. Now, of course, it's a dangerous hike, like we said, so you're going to have rescues go with that. But is it just that? Because many hikers have disappeared over the years as well. John Muir himself claimed to be a victim to the curse. Here's what he wrote. I was ascending a precipitous rock front, smoothed by glacial action, when I suddenly fell, for the first time since I touched foot to Sierra Rocks. After several somersaults, I became insensible from the shock, and when consciousness returned, I found myself wedged among short, stiff bushes. I could not remember what made me fall or where I had fallen from, but I saw that if I had rolled a little further, my mountain climbing would have been finished, for just beyond the bushes the canyon wall steepened, and I might have fallen to the bottom. So it makes you wonder if because John Muir was wanting to take care of the valley, did something keep him from falling all the way to the bottom? Hmm. So did the curse kick in and then it went, whoops, not him? Or was there a counter curse? Oh, I can't imagine how terrifying that would be to wake up and go, where am I? Okay, I'm on the side of the mountain. How did I get here? And then looking over the side and going, holy crow, don't move. I'm one brush away from descending to my death. The native people also believe that this area was home to the Mona or Yosemites, whom they consider to be similar to witches. I wonder if they moved in for this reason. Next is the spirit of the Awani. The Awani Hotel is one of the most historic and luxurious hotels in Yosemite. 
Mary Curry Tressider, who was crucial to the development of the hotel, lived in an apartment on the hotel's sixth floor until her death in the 1970s. Ever since her passing, apparitions and strange activity have been reported on the floor. There are also claims that the ghost of John F. Kennedy shows up from time to time as well. He stayed on the third floor during a 1962 visit. He was brought a rocking chair to alleviate some of his back pain. Guests have reported seeing a phantom rocking chair on the floor, despite the fact that no room has been furnished with such a chair for years. Wow, that's weird. No, I've heard of rocking chairs that seem to rock on their own as if a ghost is in them, but to actually have a phantom ghost rocking chair that's not actually there. And how cool. I had no idea that John F. Kennedy haunted this place. Yeah, well, that's what they say. Interesting. Poho No and Bridal Veil Falls has its own creepy story. Some people translate Poho No as puffing wind, but others translate it as the spirit of the evil wind, a demon who attempts to lure people over the park's Bridal Veil Falls. There are a couple of variations to the Native American legend. Young women are picking berries or grass to weave baskets near the falls when one of them is lured to the edge by a hypnotic, misty rainbow. The wind comes and attempts to pull her off the falls. The other version is that the Poho No lures young women to the falls and all the way over the edge. The chief of the tribe warns the tribe to never approach the falls or they will be lured to their death by Poho No. As legend has it, no son or daughter of the Yawahini have ever gone over the falls, but it has not protected other people from being lured to their death by the spirit. wonder how many people have died going over Brattleville Falls. I don't know, but I know that there are some in the 2000s that have gone over. So this isn't wow. just ancient time. So this is, yeah, right up to our, our current time. Interesting. The ghost of Grouse Lake goes back to the first park ranger. In 1857, he experienced a wailing sound coming from Grouse Lake. It sounded like a puppy in distress. He reported it to the local tribe who warned him not to go into the lake or to the edge. The story goes that there was a young boy from their tribe who drowned in the lake. He lures his victims to the water's edge with his cries and then pulls them into the lake to drown them. Yikes. The immense wilderness of Yosemite National Park makes it a perfect place for cryptids. There have been dozens of sightings of Bigfoot across the park and surrounding areas, which makes sense. It's pretty dense in there. There have also been reports of night crawlers, and we aren't talking about the ones you use for bait. No, we're not. They look like a walking pair of pants. That is bizarre. Yes, yeah, so I don't know if it's just like a little tiny body on the pants, because the only description I could get is it looks like like pants walking. So it's like just legs, no upper torso. Huh. The local tribe believes them to be aliens. There are images of them in statues and totem poles that confirm the beings have been here for a long time. So this is something they've been seeing and actually created images of. Yes, to keep like the written recorded history of them. wonder where they got the name Nightcrawlers from. Wow, how bizarre. And interesting that they consider them to be aliens because, I don't know, you don't necessarily think of aliens. Usually they would think, well, they're gods or something. Is Yosemite National Park just a beautiful wilderness area for people to come and enjoy nature? Are the legends and stories just made up as warnings from the native people to keep their young people in line? Are the spirits of the people who love the park still here in the afterlife? Is Yosemite National Park haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, definitely on the list. That's one of the national parks I have not been to. So looking forward to visiting that one. 
Yes, I am, I am as well. It's going to be really cool to go up and see it. And I'm looking forward to looking at some of these other national parks and finding out what kind of creepy stuff is going on in them. We'll have to see which one we do next. Yes, I'm already on it. My imagination is going. Well, of course, I need to find the ones that are haunted, but I, I'm on that one. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We got an email from Rick. He said, just been listening to HGB 239 concerning the Napoleonic era spy who mysteriously disappeared. There's a science fiction story based on this incident called He Walked Around the Horses by H. Beam Piper, published in 1948. Don't know if the text is available online, but an audio file is available at LibriVox. So isn't that interesting that we had that moment in oddity and there was actually a story written about it? That's really cool. So thank you for letting us know that. And I love that it's titled He Walked Around the Horses because that's exactly how they described it. He walked around the horses and was just gone. And Bentley sent us an email. Howdy. Hey, I listened to the Keith Albee podcast. I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, and I love the Keith Albee. There is nothing that I have seen that's even close to how cool the theater is. And I've been in a few theaters, including some Art Deco. I had a friend who used to manage the theater during the 80s. There are catacombs that you can enter in several places in downtown Huntington. I've been in them, and the catacombs are really just hallways with rooms filled with old fold-up chairs and lots of dust. Nothing really spectacular about the catacombs. As far as ghosts, I personally have never heard of the hauntings, and I spent a lot of after-hours in the theater playing laser tag and other high school types of silliness. Lee Dunphy is my friend who manages the theater, and I am fond of Liza Codwell, who helps with the renovation. Thanks, Bunches, for your podcast. Many hugs. That's hugs with a Z. Hugs. Well, we were wondering about tunnels. Apparently, there's catacombs. Yeah, so he, he said that they're, they're not so exciting, because at first when I saw catacombs in the email, I'm like, whoa, because I'm thinking of like the Paris catacombs, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. We're going to West Virginia, and so now we can wait a little bit on folding chairs, but I still want to go. Well, this reminds me a lot of true crime podcasters went to CrimeCon last year, and Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors was there, and he put together this thing where they went down into the catacombs that are in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was kind of a similar thing, I think. It was like, well, it's kind of an underground area, not as exciting as it sounds. And we got a message from Ashley. Hi, I recently started your podcast and I'm barely at episode 22. I know it was so long ago, but I wanted to add a few things that you mentioned early on in your podcast. In episode 15, you mentioned St. Augustine was the oldest city in North America. That's actually false. The oldest continuously occupied city to this day is Acoma Sky City in Acoma, New Mexico. The Acoma Pueblo have lived there since 1150 AD, so I hope St. Augustine would rather say the oldest European established city in North America. And that's a great point that she makes there. We should specify when we talk about St. Augustine that, of course, it is the first city when you're looking at European settlement. Obviously, it's kind of the same thing. I'd, I'd written her back and said it's, this, it's very similar to when they say that uh, Christopher Columbus discovered America or you know, now they're, you know now that's been thrown out the window and it's the Vikings discovered America or whatever. How do you discover a place where there's people already living? <laughs> it means it's been discovered before you. So uh, very similar to that. Right. Also, in your episode 22, you mentioned the Octagon Hall was one of the very few structures made in an octagon. This was the house that was built that way. Well, actually, my tribe, Navajo Nation, traditional homes were octagons. They're called hogans. 
It wasn't until recently that my people transitioned to square homes, although many still live in our traditional homes made of mud and wood. And a little bit more information on the Hogan. We build it in hexagons or octagons. Interesting. I guess, do we want to have one more extra wall? Well, it depends on how many pictures you have to hang up. That, that's probably it. It depends on the feng shui of the day. Our culture has many origin stories, even for just the Hogan. Just a little tidbit for you guys. Navajo culture is matriarchal. So the Hogan or home is very important because the woman is the root of the home. Pretty cool. Oh, that is super cool. So thank you for sharing those things. Yeah, we definitely appreciate that. Well, Miss Event Planner over there, we have an event that if people want to join us for on January 8th, which has already happened, it would have been on Monday, registration opened for the Haunted America Conference. Yes, and this conference is a lot of fun. This will be our third year going, and each year it seems like we get more listeners joining up with us, so we would love to have you join us in the most haunted small town in America, and that is going to be on June 22nd and 23rd in Alton, Illinois. And so generally you fly into St. Louis. It's about a half an hour. Um, St. Louis Lambert International Airport is about a half an hour from Alton. So it's a great little town, great stories, great haunts. And the conference is lined up to have a lot of amazing speakers this year. So it's put on by Troy Taylor and his group. I know some people are already joining. They've already said, yes, they're coming. But I hope a lot more of you can come and meet up with us in Alton. They do after-hours events, and we always try to do the Saturday after-hour event together. The last two years, we did the Alton Ghost Tour. We decided we wanted to change it up this year, so we are doing the Ghosts of the Great River Road Dinner Tour. This fills up very fast, so if you're going to go, make that decision quickly and reserve that as well if you want to be on that with us. Otherwise, sign up for the Alton Hauntings Walking Tour Luke hosts it. He is excellent and it is a really good tour. It's just we've already done it twice in a row, so we wanted to do something kind of different this year. Yeah, that tour is really, really great. And we're going to go in early, right, Denise, and do something on Thursday night together? Yes, I'm hoping. I need to figure out the details, but I'm hoping to have an event planned for the History Goes Bump for the Spooktacular crew and History Goes Bump listeners on Thursday night and also something going on Friday afternoon prior to the conference starting. The conference usually kicks off about 4.35 o'clock, and so we're going to do something in the afternoon on Friday and on Thursday evening if you can come in a little bit early. Where you can register for this is at ghostconference.net. We have some reviews at Apple Podcasts to share, and these are all international, Denise. Oh, fun. We have Flynn FD, Best Spooky Podcast, five stars from New Zealand. Love this show, a great combination of history and the paranormal. Diane and Denise are great presenters and feel like friends. I love their energy and enthusiasm. Well, thank you so much for that. And I believe we sent a Christmas card your way, so I hope you got that all right. Then we have Creative Works by Christine. Awesome show, five stars from Canada. Love listening to these two ladies. This podcast is perfect if you like paranormal activity and the history behind it. Keep up the amazing show. And Nick and Mel, Boo and History 2, five stars from Australia. History, spooky tales, legends, and more. Diane and Denise are fabulous to listen to. The banter helps lighten the mood to what can sometimes be a dark subject. I particularly love the moment naughty. The sound quality in the first few episodes is rough, but that quickly improves and is currently of superb quality. Diane does a great job of the editing and the effort that goes into the research is apparent. 
Keep up the great work, ladies. Well, thank you from down under. Yes, thanks. And then over at Stitcher, we don't get reviews there very often, but we did get one from Jennifer LL81. Five stars, amazing show. I found the show by accident while looking for new history podcasts and needing a change from true crime. The first few episodes are a bit rough, but it picks up quickly and now I'm hooked and binging. I just went back and listened to the one on the Queen Mary and it brought back the ghost tour I had to get off of because I was so freaked out. We were at the very beginning and they were talking about the nursery for the children and I heard kids laughing. I thought it was a soundtrack to make things feel creepier. Well, I was the only one who heard it. (laughs) Oh my God. I think I'd been running like Jesus across the water, except for that it stopped right there. I was only able to stay on the tour for about 10 more minutes before a door slamming shut sent me to the nearest exit. I would just write it off as my mind playing tricks on me if it were not for the fact that I have heard things and felt things all my life. My grandpa said I was sensitive. I do believe in ghosts and I respect them. I love having the chance to hear about all the different experiences people have had and the places that are now on my bucket list. Keep up the good work, ladies. I really hope I can make it down to Florida someday for a meetup. Y'all take care now. Well, we hope you do too, or maybe we'll meet meet up with you somewhere around the country. Yes, because we do try to expand our travels, and we always invite our listeners to join us on ghost tours as we go across the U.S. I want to thank you all for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Chelsea Bosch, Veronica Betts, Phoenix Rupp, and thank you to Suzanne Silk for increasing your donation. Thanks. Sweet dreams.